Hello everyone, Tony here, and I'm letting you know that Dwayne and I will be taking Tree Actions live. On March 27th and 28th of this year, we will be at Arbor Expo at the New Jersey Convention and Exposition Center in Edison, New Jersey. Come join us for the tree industry's fastest growing trade show and conference. This year features 19 education sessions, two of which I will be delivering, as well as all the exhibitors and demos you can expect from an excellent trade show and conference. We will look forward to seeing you there. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tree Actions, the Human Forestry Podcast. And as always, joining me in the technical background are my co-host, Tony Tressalt, and today all the way from Princeton, British Columbia, near Princeton, is longtime friend and colleague, Blair Veach. How's it going, Blair? It's going great, and good morning, Dwayne. <laughs> So, uh, you know, we always get things started, Blair, by asking people their uh, their first experience um, when they felt a kind of a connection to a tree, wherever and however that was. And uh, that's kind of how we always just start the podcast off. Um, and the reason I'm hesitating is we've had a couple people uh, – not necessarily know who each other is or everybody on our show. So uh, maybe you could just give us also a, just a bit of a background on yourself and your your journey. But if you could tie in that first experience, maybe that's too much. But <laughs> I, I've never tried this before. So the, as far as the, the background part goes, so we're, I'm learning as I go. And you'll find that we're uh, – uh, tree actions as such remains unorganized. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a that's a great question because it's, I think for a lot of us, the journey to where we are now in our life is, you know, long and storied. And, you know, I think my earliest recollection and uh, attraction to trees was we had a 60-foot white spruce in our yard and much to my mother's dismay I would climb that almost on a daily basis and I'd see how close to the top I could get and she would yell at me to come down out of the tree of course you know both my sisters were older than me so they were already in school so I would I would have been like four or five years old at the time and nothing else to do nobody no sisters to bug so I was climbing the trees but you know I, I think as as time progressed for me I I grew up on a, you know, a small farm sawmill logging operation. And so I had the chance to go with my father logging and, um, you know, I kind of enjoyed that part of it being out in the bush. And I got my first chainsaw for Christmas when I turned 13 <laughs> and um, my birthday and Christmas are very close together. So I quite often got two gifts or one gift for both events. <laughs> and I was so proud of that chainsaw. I spent uh, many hours out in the bush with my father um, logging. So I, I guess I'd be remiss because if I'm not the only one, I'm sure that's thinking it. What was it? <laughs> what kind of chainsaw did you get? We we called it the lemon limmer because my dad did the falling and I did the limming. So, you know, it was Alberta and, and the trees had lots of brush on them, but it was a little yeah. McCullough. It was actually a top handle. It was probably one of the most dangerous saws because it didn't have a chain break or anything on it. And uh, had a 13-inch bar, and it was just a, a terrible little saw. 
but uh, we we kept it running and kept it working, and uh, you know I was pretty proud of that. So we we still have it to this day. I was going to say those. I I remember those McCullers, and there's probably knowing you, it's probably still around. And you know, and I'm that may be one of the first top handles. I I I would say it was definitely in the first generation of top handles. Yeah, it had a pump oiler, so you had to keep pumping the oiler to. <laughs> And what did you guys, did you use borrow or were you using whatever oil you had? Do you know? Uh, we actually did use borrow oil because it was a little stringier and, and held things together yeah, a little better. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Um, so how did your journey progress into the trees? Well, you know, for me, you know, because I had to do it my whole life growing up, I, you know, like most kids, you hate doing it after a while because it's just work and it's no fun so i you know i told my father i would never be in the tree business never be a logger never have anything to do with sawmills <laughs> and of course i graduated high school in 82 and the first thing i did is went and got a job with high tree which eventually was bought out by davy tree um and i never really had a passion for trees for probably three or four years. And then once I discovered that there was something more than just utility work, I uh, began to have a passion for tree biology, the anatomy of trees, how things functioned, um, you know, what made things tick and um, started studying and learning about it. And uh, it soon became my, you know, overreaching passion that I just, uh, it's it consumed me and uh, became my my passion of my career. Well, I've certainly witnessed that, Blair. You know, I've known you a long time, and I, I, there's no question uh, your passion for what you do is undeniable. Uh, how? What was the spark that you recall? Like that when you when that shift occurred? What was it? A person? Was it a, an event? But what made that shift for you? Um, I think being part of Davy Tree. Uh, you know, and, and seeing the education that was offered. And uh, of course, I had never had that opportunity before. So this was a new thing for me. And, uh, you know, once I started doing the, you know, extension courses and the extended learning, I just became really passionate about it. And of course, that's when I moved from our utility operation to residential in the Edmonton area. And, um, and you know, that was the start of my a boriculture career as it is and you know I think probably the some of the most significant learning events in my career uh, particularly out in the field were the tree climbing competitions that we had you know every year and and a lot of the training events that that we you know both took part in and and uh, did and of course you went on to to making that your very successful career and uh, you know it was just to me, that was probably the highlights of, and you know, in terms of teaching moments, learning moments, um, was a lot of those events. I think they're critical to to everyone's uh, career and just the ability to stay with the industry. You're uh, did you know? I know that you did climbing. Like, how did your your you know? You obviously you climbed trees as a young lad, but when. Did it did were you climbing in the utility realm and then did it shift as you went into residential commercial or how did your climbing career evolve? Yeah, we you know typical Alberta we did a lot of uh, 
aspens, black poplars, spruce, pine, um, and quite often because, you know, some of our foremen were a little on the older side, we would get a lot of opportunity to climb. So I did climb for two or three years in utility and then switched over to residential in the Edmonton area and, and climbed there for a couple of years before I took over as the manager in that area. So yeah, it um, it was a great opportunity. And, and then of course, you know, climbing competitively was, was so much fun and enjoyable and the co camaraderie that took place there was just, you know, undeniable and how everybody worked together. So do you remember your first like time climbing free, like non-free climbing, like actually using a, a harness? Do you remember what you what your knot you used in the system? Yeah, I mean we were we were that uh, I think went before the Blake or any hitch because we were using their closed loop system at the time. And uh, so every time you went to move you had to you know, untie and retie, and uh, it was uh, pretty cumbersome. And by comparison to today's standards, you wonder how we even did it, but we did. I think it was one of the reasons why we free climbed a lot more than than uh, than we did tied in, because it was just so cumbersome to get tied in every time. And we were using the flat scare straps, uh -huh. that's what we called them at the time, um, to tie in with. Um, when we climbed as well back then, so there was really no safety mechanism at all. So the the black the scare straps, yeah. Now that was probably in the utility realm, somewhat inherited because of the connection with the lineman industry. I would think, eh? Exactly. Yeah. 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 And um, you not only competed, but you were also got involved in helping run the competitions in in our chapter as well in the early years. Uh, um, as a competitor and as uh, as the chair. Yeah, I think I chaired the Prairie Chapter event for close to 10 years. Um, and that was, you know, always really good time and a very good opportunity for education and, and training in all of those events. It was, it was really great. Well, your, your career in the trees has been, you know, uh, uh, you've, you've always... Yeah. I think it would be fair to say, you know, like like your climbing career, you climbed near as to the top as you could get, and I think you've continued on with that in your career. But also um, moving, like when you made the decision to move, um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that journey because that's quite a quite a leap, you know, from going from the Alberta to the BC market. Now, I remember you one time talking to me about your first experience in in, in looking at the trees. And you, you made some mistakes in in pricing and this because because you lose sight of the scale of things. Uh. <laughs> That's good memory because yeah, uh, 120 foot hemlock looks small by comparison to 150 foot dug first and beside <laughs> it, and so it's very easy to assume that that tree is small. But yeah, the uh, the whole move from Alberta to to BC, particularly to Vancouver, where I moved, um, you know, was an opportunity I had back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And um, it it really did open my eyes in terms of um, the size of wood at the coast and, um, you know, how to deal with it and how to deal with it safely, because, you know, that's obviously the, the key to everyday work 
in the tree industry is ensuring that you have every risk accounted for prior to making a move. And with the size of wood that we have at the coast, it's uh, it's very critical. So it was a, a big learning curve. Even, you know, the tree species were a, a big learning curve going from five or six main species in Alberta to 50 or 60 at the coast. Yeah. Yeah, it's always, I remember doing climbing courses in the West Coast my first few years out there and trollining and, and, you know, there was one fur in the one park in particular. The first limb was 120 some feet. It was quite a large lateral and it would be like, I, it was all I could do to, to get, uh, there was on my good day, I could actually get a shot over that first limb. And, uh, you know, there was a uh, big leaf maple that we would climb in beside it that, you know, you just didn't realize you you were tying in, you know, your normal working height, I think, on those trees are like 80, 90 feet or 70 feet, 80, which is the very tippity tips of the tallest trees around here. And uh, you'd always have to put into perspective how hard you had to throw because you'd I'd come from doing a course here and then the next week I would be training there and I'd go to throw in and I'm, I'm used to throwing 40 to 50 to a suitable union and now I'm I'm like falling, not even into the first branch of my throw line's falling short and it's like, what the heck? Oh yeah, this tree doesn't look that big, but oh no, it is because it's sitting underneath two 300 foot dug firs and it's a 110 foot tree itself or 120 but it's just the scale it's it's interesting how it just all blends in you know and i remember talking about it and you sharing that and i thought yeah good thing and i never had connected the estimate part of it because i would have gotten slaughtered <laughs> trying to yeah <laughs> i think we all did everybody everybody took their punches <laughs> no doubt yeah, yeah i mean some of those trees like you're talking about where you got to, you know, big shot in with a fishing line and then get in with a throw line after that and then pull your rope into position. Um, you know, just uh, a real challenge to do anything with. Yeah. Well, um, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit. You know, Blair, you there's a few people that have been in my life and that I've observed that I know well, like yourself and some that I know you know, more of an acquaintance, but that I've observed over the years that have found a way to, uh, to, uh, not only their, like their, their career is, is a demonstration of their success, but also their personal life and their own personal fitness and, and self-care. And that's something that I've always admired about you. And I've always wondered, have you ever drawn a parallel to, to your journey in that way in trees or, is, or or where did you get that from for yourself you know that you this ability you've always been active in the gym active in sports like throughout your entire career you know there's a lot of people like myself who f figured it out later in life uh but but you know there's a lot of people get into a position like yours moving into manager and leadership roles and you know not being in the trees anymore they're you know, their lifestyle affects that and it affects their health in some ways with not being as active, let's say. And and you've always maintained that, you know, and I'm, I think of Mark Chisholm, who we had on the show not that long ago, and he's an example of that. Uh, where did that come from, would you say? And, and what could you, how could you pass that on to, to young folks out there? Yeah, Mark certainly is an example <laughs> of that. He's uh, he, he definitely seems to keep a good balance. Um, for me, I, 
I think I had some examples within our own business of what not to be like health wise. And so I, you know, I kind of avowed early on in my career when I switched from climbing over to, you know, sales and management and supervision type thing that I would not uh, get in the position where, you know, I was having health issues at 50 or 55 be- just because of inactivity. So, um, and I, you know, I spent a lot of time with our younger guys because when they switch over from from that act of climbing every day to to uh, sales or management, they tend to fall into that groove where it just they become sedentary. Um, and uh, you know, I so for me, it's just always been something that I want to ensure that I keep my physical health. I want to I want to live past my retirement if if it's at all within my control. So that I have some, you know, time to enjoy uh, when I've finished my career, um, and uh, and it's always been a good balance. Of course, you know, my wife, she is the same. So it's very good to have a partner. And in my case, I'm very lucky to have a partner like that that stays active and you know pushes me a little bit on days that I don't feel like it, and you know, vice versa. I'm sure, but uh, it's always been a critical part of of my career to to stay stay in reasonably good shape and to stay in a position where I can, you know, be healthy throughout my, my life. So when you, when you made the transition and you, you were faced with that, you know, do I become more sedentary? And, and I think also the, the shift that requires, you know, you go from like quite an intensity, like it's quite a dramatic shift from estimator you know, you have a truck, you drive around, you talk to people, you sell work, which is kind of the, the, the next step for a lot of arborists, whether they start their own business or they move up in, man, you know, in sales in a, in a company like Davey. But um, it's such a dramatic shift from production tree work. I mean, there's very few jobs that are, whether you're climbing and cutting or it's just stuffing a chipper, I don't care. You, you, it's, it's tough work, you know, and it's, it's quite a transition. So, uh, you know, for me, what I found, what, what I struggled with for a long time was, was what I, I would get down on myself for not being at the level I was when I was in that active role. And it, it actually took me to a place where I felt like it wasn't, well, what's the point? Cause I'm nowhere near what I was. And, and in that moment, I demoralized myself, so to speak. Um, so what, you know, how much, like what I, I'm just curious, I guess I should put it differently. I found finally that it really isn't that much to, you know, just busting a move every day of sorts, like as little as going for a walk for me these days makes such a big difference. Did you find that transition to be that way or like as far as intensity or what it took? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, for me, it's, you know, I won't say it's been a roller coaster, but it, it's had a lot of ups and downs throughout the years trying to stay focused on, you know, like you say, it, you are not nearly at the intensity. And I believe that the job of an arborist is probably one of the most difficult on the face of the earth. I mean, moving your body through a tree with gear and chainsaws <laughs> and, and uh, potentially pieces of wood is, uh, you know, incredibly physically demanding. And so to come from that to, 
you know, even a hybrid model, um, you're not nearly in the shape you were in. Uh, sometimes you don't have the aches and pains you had either because of the, you know, injuries. But, um, I, you know, I, I think uh, for me, it's it's just been the same as what you're saying. It's some days you think this isn't even worth it. Like, you know, I'm not nearly where I used to be. You know, how am I going to get back there? But like you say, it's just, you know, moving yep. and and that's what's been critical for me, just not to stop altogether, but just to keep moving. And and I think that, you know, you, you've got an incredible pile of energy, um, and I've always admired you for that. And, uh, you know, it's it's within us to want to move and to want to do it. And I think that's, you know, helped me in my career. I know it's helped you in your career. Delivering energy to a group of folks comes from deep within and, uh and I, you know, I think even in, in my current position as, you know, vice president, general manager of our Canadian operations, I know that when I come into a room, I have to deliver energy. It's critical, you know, whether we're, you know, talking on a Teams meeting or Zoom or whether we're physically together, that we have to, as leaders, we have to deliver energy. And, and that's always been part of it for me, too. You have to present um to your group or to other groups that you have energy and a willingness to use it. And I think, you know, staying fit is part of that delivery. Yeah. Oh, no, Tony, you, you've uh, walked similar path. I know that you, you have a, you know, you're an example of this as well. I'm curious what your comp, because you know, you're, you're, you're not a spring chicken anymore. <laughs> 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 what are you saying, Dwayne? What you, yeah, I think um, I think the biggest change for me at that point in my career was I hadn't realized how much just my job kept me fit. Um, you know, I always figured that I never really did any training or anything outside of work because I was just too, I just didn't feel like it. Um, you know, and I hadn't realized how how much physical activity was involved in it until you step away from it and go to it. And then I think for me, when I got to that realization, part of like that realization, like, yeah, you know, in my fifties, I'm not, I'm not 21 anymore. I, 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 I admit it and I, and I embrace it now, I think. But, uh, I, I think the realization is it's like, I don't think there's much any humans can do to extend the number of days you actually live. Right. I think so much of that's decided, um, short of like, you know, reckless driving, but, I, but what you can increase is your span of health. I don't think you can increase your span of life. I think you can increase your span of health. Um, so I, when I got to the point now where it's like, yeah, I'm not 21 anymore and, and climbing trees left and right with uh, no recrimination and no recovery time, um, I like to think that all that blended in. And now I'm actually fortunate I can do less and get the same amount of benefits, right? So it's just, it's been it's it's been an interesting, and I do admire people like Blair that have that have kept with it because it's easy to fall into that trap of like, well, I'm not what I was when I was in my late twenties, early thirties. Why even bother to try? Um, but it is worth trying, right? It is worth trying because you will, you might not expand the number of days you live, but you expand expand the quality of those days that you are alive. I I I always think to. I guess I'm on this human forest uh, theme these days, and you know I'm, I'm brought back to it, you know, every time we do a podcast, and uh, you know I, I I think of an old tree or as a tree's life, you know, obviously it's in the 
the realm of hundreds of years or decades, maybe even thousands, depending on the species we're talking about. But you think of a tree as a sapling or as a young tree and its flexibility and its energy state and its resiliency. And then as it matures and gets older, all the way to retrenchment, you know, I don't think I'm quite at that stage, but if I put myself on a scale, you know, like I'm not as flexible as I used to be. I'm definitely, you know, I'm a little crustier. I got thicker bark, you know, <laughs> and eventually you got to get, you know, a little shorter, a little wider to handle the, what life throws at you, like the wind and the weather, right? And I, I think that there's such an example in the human, fo- in the forest to our human forest of how to live in a tree. It's, it, more and more, it just astonishes me, you know, not from, not just the withstanding the forces of wind and gravity, but, you know, wounds and injuries that occur, you know, things that hurt us and, and how trees deal with that. Um, but I'm, I'm curious where, and I haven't asked anyone this before, so here we go, tree actions as such being unorganized, but maybe this can be a theme we, we strike up. What what tree you'd put yourself at, as if you think of yourself, what kind of tree and what stage are you at in your in your life when you compared yourself to a tree right now? <laughs> hmm, I don't know. I got to think about that one a little bit. Okay. I got to... So, yeah, so. well, I guess it's a, it's a tough question to just pop on you. But you don't think too long. You don't think of a too smart of an answer. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> probably somewhere like a crusty old mangrove at this point. But you know, I don't want to. I don't want to <laughs> half sunk in the water and since the boat's driving into me, swearing at me all the time. But, yeah, you know. <laughs> That's why I got to think about it. Or you'll get an answer like that. It's uh, a good answer, though. And then you know, I, and maybe that could be a food for thought for folks out there. Uh, um, you know, while you think about that, Blair, do you or have you ever thought that or drawn parallels uh, in your own life from from the example of of trees like being involved with trees so long? Have you ever have you ever thought of that, or do you feel there is a parallel or or to how you live to how trees live? Well, I mean, for a long time, and some of my presentations, I had you know pictures of trees that were, you know when we would go hiking uh, or alpine climbing, you'd see trees that were battered by wind and, you know, probably several hundred years old and hanging off the edge of a rock and, and you'd see them, you know, and to me, that was always just an example of never give up, you know, just keep on going. And, uh, and I used some of those photos in some of my presentations over the years too, as an example of, you know, how we need to live our lives and uh, not be dissuaded by the smallest little things that come along and try and detour us. And so, you know, I, I think to me, trees are definitely an example of of the resiliency that we can have. And, you know, humans have shown that for thousands of years of how resilient we are and how adaptable we are to change. I think Sometimes, um, you know, older trees are not as adaptable as younger trees. And we see this in the urban environment when, uh, you know, people come along and make changes to their properties. Um, We see, you know, young trees are much more resilient to to change and older ones can't accept it. So, you know, I think that's an example of uh, how humans are and, and, you know, what we need to be thinking about as well, because 
change is inevitable for sure. That's a good, interesting comment. I wonder, you know, as many parallels as there can be to trees and people, it, you know, and I agree that older trees would have more difficulty in drastic changes in their environment. Uh, and do you think it's the same for people or can people differ in that? No, way? I, I think it's definitely the same. You know, I, I look at my parents and, uh, you know, as you said, you get a bit more crusty or cynical as you get older. And, and uh, you know, we, <laughs> we have the ability to change where we live. Of course, trees do not. So they're pretty much stuck putting up with whatever <laughs> happens around them. Where, whereas, you know, we can, we can change our position if we, if we choose. But, you know, even when I look at my parents, I, you know, I think they're not adaptable anymore. They're, you know, 86 and 82 and there's no adaptation there. It's, they are what they are. They're not, they're not moving. And there, and, but isn't it interesting? I'm starting to feel a little bit more like this as I, as I, you know, start to scale back my career, so to speak, and certainly not travel as much, which was a huge part of my career. But where I feel more comfortable at home, even even in the winter, you know, as much as I like the warm climates and, and I do escape to there, you know, annually for certain periods of time. But, you know, more and more I find quite a comfort in just home or staying put. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about. And that, that yeah, that's interesting. And, and I think it's okay, too. And it's. You know, I remember Dr. Shigo, you know, in the later years, you know, him warning me, first of all, Dwayne, the road will eat you alive. Be careful. And then in his later career, he just said, no, you come to me. You want to come to a seminar? I'm holding them at my house. You want to come? You you yeah. come here. And he stopped moving around, too, which is part of this change business, you know. Uh, very interesting. Um, well, and you're kind of. Your roots are sinking in where you're at, and you you know you it's interesting because you've kind of drawn more back to where you were from. Yeah, and I, I think we all kind of tend to do that, and we you know we're talking before the show a little bit about our roots, and you know it you never you never tend to forget where you came from, and uh, you know it, you have a lot of fond memories of um, you know growing up, and uh, you know I think it's it does kind of draw you back. And of course, just, you know, even the, the country and, you know, the solitude is, um, is great. Even as you get older, it's just nice to not have the hustle and bustle of a big city around you. Uh, when you're young, you know, it's, it's, you love it. You know, it's, you're excited about going to the big city and let's get as close to downtown as we can get. And then as you get a little bit older, it's like, I need a little more space. I don't quite want this many people standing around me here today. Not only that, yes, well, yeah, but, but, and the connections are, are, I was going to say the same. You still look for connection, I find, but they're different. Like, um, instead of it being a bunch of people and a dynamic, eclectic environment, like a nightclub or downtown and the energy that you were talking about, because then you definitely get energized. But, you know, now it's like, I find that connection in in like a dog or a horse yeah. Yeah, agreed yeah. <laughs> or a walk or a walk in the forest you know and and it, you're still seeking that and needing it but you you get it in a different way as you age and that's that's fast i wonder if trees you know connect 
Well, that's well, that's a wild one. That that's that's interesting. You know, because we talked about how dynamic young trees are, and and flexible, and and you know the the amount the amount of you know dynamic energy just in their entire structure, and then as heartwood develops and wound wood occurs and injuries, and then you know you develop it, it different. It's interesting. There's got to be a it's an end, endless parallel. It I guess. sure is. Um, you have that. I mean, you definitely. I know horses are part of it for you, for sure, out there, and 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 also just the countryside. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we raise uh, purebred Rocky Mountain saddle horses here, and and uh, so you know to get out and go for a tour and enjoy the countryside is is uh, definitely a privilege we have here. It is, and I've been able to enjoy it at least once. I need to come do it again. Yeah, you do. Um, <laughs> uh, just a just a comment though on you know your earlier question about you know being interested in the war culture and where some of the early ones and you know looking back you know I've been with Davy Tree now in March it'll be 40 years that I've been with the company and and the learning wow. opportunities that we have now comparatively to what we had in 1984 or even 1990 whatever are yeah. so much greater with with the just the ability to connect um mm. so i i do feel that you know young folks that are coming into the industry now just have such an opportunity to you know expand their knowledge and understanding of trees mm. and and the whole industry so much better than than we had back in the day because it was a it was a struggle to find information and to to learn um, 30, mm -hmm. 40 years ago. Yeah, it, it, it's a very different world. You know, we found that, you know, the, the uh, I, don't know, I don't know if the right word is the caliber, but the student that we have in our courses, it's quite different than it was when we started the company back in the 90s, early 90s, you know, uh, because they're able to find out so much, you know, information through YouTube or just Instagram, Facebook, whatever they're they're watching so many things and these influencers, as they're called, you know, and yet you really, you know, I don't know if it's worse than it was before because we always are a product of what we see and 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 who we're around, you know, and uh, but now that that sphere of influence can be expanded digitally, and uh, not everything you see and read on the internet is going to be the best way to go about things. It might look cool. <laughs> that it may get you in trouble you know and uh so that's that's an interesting path to navigate and I, i'm it just made me think of how how, is, how have you experienced that we had don blair was one of our first guests and uh, he went on a bit of a of a chance to listen to his podcast if you haven't everyone you should give it a cast it's but he talks about these the new generation of climber that he feels is 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 leaning less maybe in some ways and I'm, I'm i don't want to put words in his mouth here but you know that people are missing out on the mentoring that ha occurs when you work at a company and you stay put and you you watch and you listen and you learn and you do what you're told and he said now people do that for like six months and they're off contracting and they're climbing the tallest stuff and putting everything on the internet do you is that something that you feel like you know you employ a lot of arborists is that a struggle or is it a benefit or how is that playing with with your company? 
Yeah, that it's definitely a struggle, and it's you know I think um, just the ease of advertising, uh, the ease of you know getting into your own business now, the the idea of being your own boss and running your own hours is a is a huge attraction to younger folks. They don't want to work forty or fifty hours a week anymore. They want to work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and that's it. And they yeah. they still want to make as much money as they would if they were working forty or fifty hours a week. So. Um, you know, I don't know where this is going to go, but it's certainly a challenge for all companies. And, um, you know, I think the internet, um, you know, the connections people make um, electronically just are kind of spurring that movement on as well. You know, I agree. And, I, you know, I don't want to be the old guy that stands in the way of progress because I don't think that's even possible. You know, again, I go back to the trees. You know, if a tree grows way too fast, overstimulated, overfertilized, it tends to break as it gets bigger. And I don't know if there's a similarity there, but, um, you know, how could you impart any of this? You know, if we have some of our younger listeners, what, how, how do you, gain the mentorship and experience of that, that, that some of us have gone through, not necessarily because we wanted to, but out of necessity because we didn't have these other means of distraction or education, depending on how you look at it. You know, I, I often wonder what, what do you suggest to a young person these days getting into the business and, uh, and how they, you know, and even this, this work thing, like, is it a trend that, you know, is our work, is 40 hours a week. I, I heard recently someone say that, that that in and of itself is antiquated. You know, we have to, that we need to take care of ourselves and have time for ourselves. And like a 20 hour week is going to be more real, realistic. And that's all you're going to get. It seems like there's a lot of that around these days. Is that, and that seems hard for me to understand. But is that a trend? Is it a fad? Or is it the way things are going? Yeah. And, you know, that is so true. And when I look back at my career, I, you know, I can think of, 20 or 30 people that I know were much smarter, much more talented than me, um, but they just didn't have the patience to see it through. They didn't, they, mm. they wanted something more right now. And um, so many of them, you know, left our company, left other companies to do something different. The grass is greener somewhere else. And, um, you know, the majority of them, from what I know of them have not been real successful. You know, the odd one has, uh, the majority of them have not been. And so, you know, from my vantage point, I always encourage people to be patient, to uh, see mm. things through and just, uh, you know, it's the middle miles that are the, the tough ones. It's not the, the first two miles of a, of a journey that's tough and it's not the last two. It's always the middle of 40 or 50 that, uh, when you're running a marathon that are the tough ones. And so yeah. I always encourage people just to, you know, see it through and uh, good things will come. They definitely did for me. And, um, you know, I know that there was a lot of smarter people that I worked with that didn't take advantage of the opportunities that came their way. Well, you know, if we just look at your career and with that in mind, the patience element, which I think is a really poignant statement and, and very true. 
for me, for sure, I, I think of impatience has affected me to a certain degree in my life. But, you know, your career began from when it began in, what, 84, 85? 84, yeah. 84, you know, and if you, how many years before you, you're, if you track your, 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 you know, you know, uh, monument, or uh, what's the word I'm looking for, you know, significant turning points in your career, what was the time span? I mean, you're at 40 years now, you know, if you, and did you have times where you thought right before that pivotal change, maybe I should do something else, but you stuck it out. Can you give us a timeline of how that went for you? Maybe that's something people could relate to. Like, this is like 40 years. Everyone looks, you know, oh, yeah, he's the he's the big guy in charge. But, I mean, you started in 84. What were you doing? Yeah, I mean, in 84, I was dragging brush out, out of a ditch over a barbed wire fence in the snow, feeding it through a chipper. And, uh, you know, that it seemed like I did that forever before I got a chance to climb trees and then move up into a crew foreman, et cetera. But, uh, you know, I, I guess when I look back, it was probably a year and a half to two years, you know, before I, you know, started being able to, you know, take a little more active role in the leadership on a crew, which is fairly typical right. in today's environment as well. And then, okay. you know, within five years, I was moved into a residential operation and doing sales part-time sales, part-time climbing. And then a couple of years later, I was managing. Uh, yeah. So, you know, by 1991, I was running our Edmonton residential office. So that's six years into my career. Right. And, uh, and it was a very small operation. So, you know, it wasn't much at the time. We grew up to be something awesome, but it yeah. certainly wasn't at the time. And then, yeah. in, you know, 10 years later, Essentially, nine or ten years later, I moved to Vancouver to take on the role of manager at the coast. And then ten years later again, I moved up into an operations manager for Western Canada. And several years later, I took on the role that I have now. And I've been doing my current role for about 11 years. Those milestones, you know, like six to ten year chunks, yeah. you know? They are, and yeah. A lot of people like that's too long to wait. It seems like potentially, I don't, you know, I don't want to judge anyone, but you in the middle of that, like you say, that middle of that marathon, there's, you know, life occurs, challenges, but I, I really do think there's something to be said for that stick to itiveness, and, but not only that, you know, you were talking about energy and, and bringing that energy, you know. There's something to be said for that too, and and the results are in, you know, it gives you the strength to persevere through that time period, but also the growth. Like, you know, there's a few people, I'm obviously that that could have accomplished what you did not only in your career, but but even growing that office in Edmonton from what it was like that was an energy transfer. There was an exchange, you know, your energy and work translated into that growing and thriving and, and creating more opportunity for you. I, I think you'd agree. I would. And, you know, it's the same for your business. And that's the only reason your business is done as well as it has is because of your energy. And it literally has been a transfer of energy between you and, you know, all your students and all your trainers. And, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's how they learn, right? You've always said it. 
Learning takes energy. Learning requires energy. Yep, you bet. And uh, so does life. And yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, yeah. Well, Tony, what do you think? You were, you're this energy business. I'm just, I'm just curious, Blair, with your, your long, with your 40 years in the industry, what do you think were some of the big turning points in the industry in advancement where things really kind of changed for the better? Cause they definitely have, right? I was curious what, where, where you would find those turn points. Yeah. Have they ever? And I mean, in the early nineties, when we first started changing the way we climbed trees and I mean, we thought we were, you know, such leading edge at the time. And, you know, now I look at all the gadgets and everything everybody has, and I think it's twice as easy now as it was back then. We were still, you know, humping our way up the tree in various ways. And now, you know, even changes like that have been transformational for our industry and have allowed people to do the job now that could never have done it before. And, people to do it with a lot less injuries, repetitive injuries, long-term injuries. Um, so yeah, just, mm-hmm. just even in that regard, it has changed dramatically. The, the scientific end of things, uh, you know, where we've studied the breaking points of trees, you know, insects, disease mm-hmm. evolution and the treatments and um, how to manage things, you know, have, have changed so much in the last 30 years. It's incredible. And um I think they've changed far more in the last 30 years than they did in the previous 100 years of the tree industry in, mm-hmm. in North America. So it it really is a, a time for, you know, young folks to step on board and, and have a great career in our, our industry and uh, just be at the forefront of a lot of the changes that have taken place in the last decade. I agree. And, and, it, and not only that, it, it it certainly seems to be growing. I don't know if you know where the end is but it 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 in the last few years well particularly since the pandemic it seems like it's just like a whole it's like it the possibilities just expanded into far greater than what i i think that i what i would have originally perceived somehow and uh and i'm curious what you think about the next 30 well that's a very good question i mean you know 30 years ago when you said you were an arborist people said a what and now you say you're an arborist and people go, oh, cool, you work with trees. And, you know, I mean, there's still a few people out there that don't know what an arborist is, but most people do. And I think that's kind of the, the beginning of being recognized as an industry and as a trade. Um, you know, I think it's critical uh, for the next 30 years that, that our industry does become a proper trade a red seal trade here in Canada. I don't think we can really make good progress without that. I think having the government, the ITA, the, you know, whatever training authority that we're dealing with across Canada, they need to um, be part of our educational process. We can't be fragmented like we have been for forever, or in some cases, uh, non-existent. And uh, so, you know, all those aspects are critical to um, to moving our industry forward. Um, you know, I, I think there's enough smart people in the business. There's enough well-educated people with PhD behind their name uh, to um, push our business forward if we can be organized enough to, 
to move forward with it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, you know, with the recognition and more people knowing what arborists are and, and being more aware of it, I think that, um, that it, it's a logical next step that, that the recognition has to follow through in a more, I guess in Canada, I think of it as a, like, like you say, a red, say, red seal or, or a trade type recognition that where, where governments or governing bodies can attach some type of standards, I guess, to what gets done and how it gets done, you know, and, and that will further serve to elevate the, uh, the professionalism and, and, the, and, the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious, do you think that's something that comes from existing associations or is it something that's going to require a new type of movement of sorts? And, and certainly, you know, we can speak here from a Canadian perspective. I mean, I think Crony, Tony can correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe in the U S there's, there's the framework has been laid for a trade for arborists, but it hasn't really grown legs at this point yet. I don't think, is that not true, Tony? Is that? Yeah. The way it's going to work here in the States, it'll have to go state by state. Um, so there are some States that have taken some very positive steps forward to recognize arboriculture as a trade. And, uh, well, once, once they, and then it, it, it tends to be a little bit like dominoes, right? Once you get enough dominoes tilting in the right direction, then they all start falling. I, I think one of the biggest, I mean, line clearance here, line clearance arboriculture here is already a trade in the States, right? They have the, you know, the, that's already in place. I think probably one of the biggest benefits I think I could see from that is it would just, it would open the door to like Votech programs, high school level programs. I think a lot more people would get introduced to the to the work that now, you know, I, I never are, you know, I came into it. I've never known a world without tree work. My dad, you know, started doing tree work when I, the year I was born. So I've always seen it, but you know, I'm the exception, not the rule. I think that when it gets to a trade level, the other side of that is, is it opens up a whole sea of people, men and women at a much earlier age to get into this field. Um, you know, for every 10 that comes in, maybe one sticks with it, but you know, now there's only 10 coming in, whereas if it was recognized more as a trade, if it was taught at vocational schools, if it was seen as something along those lines, like like the other trades, like the electrician trades and like the plumbing trades and the welding trades and things like that, then it opens those doors up. And I think that's just improvement across the board because um, there's a lot of very smart people that would really, really excel at this work and would really carve out a nice career and would really you know, do good things for trees and arboriculture. They just don't even know. It's just not even on their radar. Uh, I'm curious, but do you think like the associations have played a role in that? And I don't need to get specific. I think we all know the associations that play and, and that have a role in the industry, but is it, are we talking about something different? And, and is that, are they in a position to help us or is it, is it going to require something more, you know, uh, nation specific or, you know, what do you see in the, in the role being the, how that moves forward potentially like in actually becoming reality, the whole trade business, at least in Canada? Well, I, I think we're seeing it move forward here right now. And, you know, from, as Tony mentioned, the utility trade, um, to me, the utility and the non-utility trade are essentially the same without the electrical part. Um, to me, a utility arborist should have all the skills that a residential arborist should have. They should just uh, 
know a little bit more perhaps about uh, energized lines and i i don't even agree with my own comment on that but um there's some people that do think that there should be a separate designation to me if you're an arborist you should be able to work anywhere in a tree regardless of what's around it and have the knowledge to perform that service uh, regardless if it's energized power lines or a glass pool room below you um, so you know I, to me an arborist is an arborist and i've worked both sides of it i've spent 20 years in residential and 15 or 20 years in, in utility and you know i I think an arborist is an arborist, but not everybody's going to agree with me. So baby steps, um, you know, I, I think we'll probably see a utility red seal in Canada before we'll see a residential red seal, uh, just because the utilities are driven by the utility companies. And most of, of the, you know, the driving force is around safety component of it and uh, yep. incident frequency how to reduce those incidents and that's education. I mean, there's, there's just no other way around that. Um, well-trained educated people have a much less risk of, of getting injured or injuring those around them. Um, much less chance of having an unplanned event. Right. You know, and is it I, like the, it seems you know the what seems to be the the reason i guess i don't know if that's the right word but you know in the utility realm like even in the united states you have a, a trade it's more recognized and i think the utilities bring something that we lack in the residential marketplace and that is the utilities bring uh well first of all they have they bear a liability because of their infrastructure that they manage and that infrastructure is quite valuable and there's resources attached to that and income and they have the resources to support a trade like service. And they, and they're, there's an obligation to ensure safety of the workers around those, that infrastructure. Whereas when you're dealing with residential commercial, there is there's resources there and there's money to be made obviously i mean companies strive doing it or thrive doing residential commercial tree work but for some reason we have you talked about incidents and preventing those you know th that we have proof of incidents in the residential commercial marketplace but yet there isn't you know there isn't like a group of people like a utility that have the resources to invest in in, in making something like like recognize as a trade or is that like what is it that keeps that we know the fatality statistics they're not in the utility sector they're in the residential commercial sector and we're not talking injuries we're just talking deaths that we know are high and yet we struggle to have these programs for the residential marketplace why do you think that is well i you know and i kind of hate to say this but everybody you know is afraid of organized labor and i think we need to get past that that's the first thing that uh, people need to move on past that worry because it's not really a worry it's okay you know it's just another factor of the potentially another factor of our business um the other you know reason that i think people sort of don't push training forward is because they feel like they're going to train their people and lose them so they don't 
you know, they don't want to give them any more than they have to. They don't want to invest any more into them than they have to. Um, but I think, you know, the organizations, whether it be ISA, TCI, a, um, you know, they have moved our industry forward immensely. And I think, yeah. you know, the associations yeah. are still the venue to, to move them forward. I think that's, that's our medium for, you know, people getting together and, and moving education and the industry forward. Yeah. It's a interesting topic. And, uh, you know, I've, uh, you know, I've been outspoken and passionate about it for years, you know, that, and it's, I built my, you know, this business on, on genuinely, you know, it was, it was to improve the knowledge of arbors to help keep people safe, you know, and experiencing having friends that died early in the career, you know, being exposed to the consequences of this business, you know, in a real hard and fast way. And uh, then realizing that it's not as uncommon as I thought, you know, and that just driving me to try to bring that awareness. Really, it, it was about like curing ignorance through education. And then it's up to you to make a choice. And, uh, you know, that's where we're at today, I think, you know, people have to make that choice. It's not legislated. It's not organized. You don't have to be a journeyman arborist. You don't have to be, you don't even need training, but it's worker beware kind of like instead of buyer yeah, beware. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and it really is in this business, you know, and I, that's always been what I strive to tell people, you know, just know what can happen and what has happened to, a hundred plus people every year that maybe if they just knew the risks going into it, they might've made a different decision. And that's the best we can do right now. And, uh, I I'd like to see that be a little different, but, um, you know, I think so much of it comes down to what we were talking about earlier is, uh, that energy and what you're passionate about and willing to give. And then you also mentioned change. And I think that's a big part of it too, is the fear of that. You know, the fear of change is something to be feared and resisted. And it's, it's a chronic issue in so many parts of our life and careers. That's where the youth comes in, not afraid of change. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, there we got, and here we have an old timber talking about not to be afraid of change. So there yeah. you go. <laughs> the only thing sure in our life is change and death, of course. But Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, um, well, this has been a great uh, podcast, as always, and I've appreciated your insights and your honesty, Blair. Um, you know, it, I've always uh, appreciated that about you and your candor, and uh, thank you for, for agreeing to be on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Dwayne. I really appreciate it, and uh, it was a great opportunity to discuss this. Yes. Well, I appreciate chatting with you too, Blair, and uh, thanks for... Uh, agreeing on on such short notice and uh yes thank you and same to you guys okay yeah thanks so much player appreciate having you on bye for now guys bye Blair. <laughs>